0: I'm the associate uh, assistant pastor of church planting here. I've um, been called by the the session, and to go and plant a church uh, in Amelia County, and and so this is one of my last weeks here uh, with you. Someone asked earlier, how long do we get to keep you? And um, not much longer. Uh, we're we're planning to start worship services in Amelia in September. So um, this week and next week, and then you know, hopefully you'll never see me again. Really, um, <laughs> that's what some of you are thinking, at least, right? But. We'll be around for a little while, uh, but we'll be again in uh, a Jonah this morning, Jonah the minor prophet in the Old Testament, uh, known for the big fish, and um, just before we, we turn to God's word and just reminding us where we're at, you know, Jonah's called to go to Nineveh, this great city, and uh, he rises and flees, and he says, I'm, I'm not going to that place, I'm going to go over here to Tarshish, and, um, and then in Jonah, uh, the end of Jonah chapter 1, he's, he's swallowed by the big fish. That moment we're all waiting for, and Jonah happens, and it, it passes, and Jonah uh, then prays finally, right, for the first time in Jonah chapter 2. And last week we talked about how, how his prayer was incomplete. He didn't, he didn't really repent. He wasn't sorrowful for his, his hard-heartedness, for his rebellion, but he wanted, he wanted relief, and that God wasn't done with him. So Jonah 2 ends with the Lord speaking to the fish, and it vomiting uh, Jonah up onto dry land. So what's next for Jonah? And that's what we're going to talk about this morning. Uh, that obviously, I mean, he's a screw-up, right? I mean, he's, he's fled, he's, he's rebellious, he's hard-hearted, he has no desire to do what God's called him to do. So what, what's God going to do with him? And So before we turn to God's Word this morning, let's spend some time uh, in prayer together. Heavenly Father, we ask this morning as we turn uh, to your Word, we open your Word, uh, that you would be at work, uh, that your Holy Spirit would be at work in our hearts uh, drawing us into deeper faith this morning. And the greater understanding of your love, of your grace. And that we might pursue the righteousness of Christ. With greater fervor. and With greater love. It's in his name we pray. Amen. So Jonah chapter 3 beginning in verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. Saying, arise, go to Nineveh from the greatest of them to the least of them. The word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne, removed his robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat in ashes. And he issued a proclamation and published it through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And, and let them call out mightily to God. Let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. Who knows? God may turn and relent from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. And when God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said would do to them. And he did not do it. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. This is God's word. It's without error in any part. It's given for our good and for his glory. So what's he going to do with Jonah? We, we, we get to this place, Jonah's been spit up on dry land, and, and then the word of the Lord comes a second time. It says, and it's the same word. What, what we see is that we, we think Jonah's done. And, and we think this about ourselves often. When we find ourselves in, in sin, when we find ourselves un, unable to shake Our guilt and our shame, we think God may have provided forgiveness. He may have provided cleansing, but I'm of no use to him any longer. He can't use a sinner like me. He can't use someone with my story, my shame, my guilt. So what is he going to do? We underestimate his grace. We underestimate his grace. We underestimate his grace for for us, for the believer, for those of you here this morning that, that would call on Christ, that rest in his work we underestimate his grace for the non-believer as well. And so those are the two things we're going to look at. The, the, how we underestimate his grace. Or the grace that he shows us as believers. And the grace he shows to the non-believer. Jonah's forgiven. He, he's, he's rescued from the fish. He's rescued from God's justice in the belly of this great fish. And he's spit up on dry land. So what use is he? Well, right here, beginning in, in Jonah 3, verses uh, one it says, the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time. By now, we've got to be rooting for him, right? Don't screw it up again, Jonah. Like, you're getting a second chance. We, we all long for a second chance. I, I don't care where it is you have failed, you want a mulligan. You want to try again. I take a lot of mulligans when I play golf. If we ever play golf together, just know that. I bring, like, four, you know, cases of balls, and we're going to be, be there a while. because I want to hit a good shot. I want to do a good job. I want to do the right thing. It's the same way in life. When we fail, we want a second chance. And there's sometimes we know we're not going to get a second chance, right? When we speak harshly to our, our children, to, to our, our, our friends, or to our, our wives, or our husbands, and we, we can see that our words have stung them, we don't get a second chance, but we get a chance to repent. And, and, We said last week, Jonah's not really getting that chance. He hasn't done that yet. And yet here we are, God extending him this grace. The word came to him a second time. It is one of the most grace-filled verses in all of the Bible. God says to him, it's not just that I forgive you and I have saved you, but that you are still called. That you still have a chance. That verse gives me so much comfort because I know how stubborn I am. I, I, I know the sinfulness of my heart. I know the places that I can't shake things off. And the times when, when, when I curl up and, and wonder, am I useful? Why am I doing these things? And God's word says, you are. Because time and time again, he is a God of second chances. I mean, we, we sometimes maybe surprise ourselves with our sinfulness and our stubbornness. You know, King David probably never thought he could commit adultery and kill his friend. Peter never thought it would be so easy to deny Christ three times. And then as an apostle, mar the gospel so poorly that they had to be called to the floor by Paul, right? He, he didn't think that was possible. We, we are stunned at, often by our disobedience. But here's the thing, we shouldn't be. And at our core, we're not. But God says there's a second chance. Yes, we know we've been cleansed. Yes, we know ha- we have forgiveness, but are we useful? Can God still use us for the work of the kingdom? And the call of Jonah a second time says, yes, it's the exact same call, the exact same commission. Word for word, pinstroke stroke for pinstroke. stroke. He doesn't change it. He doesn't, he doesn't say to Jonah, Nineveh, maybe it was too much for you. You're, you're maybe you're right, you're not ready for that. Go here instead. No, it's to the same place. It's to the same destination. He's called again to Nineveh. He knows he's scared Jonah half to death, but that's where he's calling him. He doesn't change the message. He doesn't say, okay, may, maybe going to this this these people, these Assyrians who are known to be somewhat violent um, and, and telling them that their evil has, has risen to the, the, the the ears of a righteous god and that you're going to proclaim upon them you know uh destruction is a little much for you jonah so instead of that like just tell them some good stories just just give them some good wisdom for life and, and 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 maybe maybe plug the church a little bit so they'll show up occasionally um to hear something no he gives them the same message he says go to nineveh and proclaim to him what i'm going to tell you Proclaim to them what I'm going to tell you. The same exact thing he said to him in chapter 1. He says here in chapter 3. Peter's second chance, right? P- Peter's denied Christ three times. At this point, he's thinking, I was told the, that the church would be built upon me, and, and obviously, I've screwed that one up. Like, I denied Christ three times, and um, he, he, he goes off, you know, with a, like a, a, a beaten dog with his tail between his legs and his head hanging, and does what every good and defeated man does right peter goes fishing and jesus meets him there on the shore and he restores him and in restoring him he does what he he gives to him again the same commission feed my sheep feed my sheep feed my sheep brothers and sisters i don't i don't care what you've done i don't care i do care what shame and guilt you're covering because i I want you to know the freedom of the gospel but in this sense it doesn't matter it doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter what you've left undone. It doesn't matter what your reputation is or, or the sins that, that you have come to Christ for. There's not only forgiveness, but in that forgiveness, he puts you to work. And there are things that can disqualify you from certain aspects of, of, of ministry, right? If, if Andrew or Brian or myself do things, there are things that, that disqualify us from the office of being a pastor. But they do not disqualify us from the work of the kingdom. Your sins, your past, your shame, your guilt do not disqualify you from the call to work for the kingdom. In fact, it's in that shame, in that guilt, that often the greatest stories of redemption, the most beautiful stories of God's grace, blossom and flourish and grow. There might be places that are closed off, but you're still called, you're still useful. So he calls Jonah, and notice what Jonah does in verse 3. He goes. He goes. This time, instead of rising and fleeing, he rises and he goes to Nineveh. And it's the same for you and me. When, when we begin to really wrestle with the gospel, when we begin to understand the grace of God, when we begin to understand it's, it's a forgiving grace and a restoring grace. It's an empowering grace. And, and when we take that good news, and we become messengers of grace. Begin to take that with us. We, we underestimate it absolutely. And we write ourselves off. But stop. Take in how marvelous it is. Take in how amazing it is. The grace of God. And begin to soak yourself in it. Bathe yourself in it. And it will be that, that you go into the world with. That's what Jonas understood now. He's been saved from the fish and in, in, in the moment where he thinks he's about to be, you know, God's going to come down in justice on him as he's saved him just to, to be punitive. And no, he, he gives him the same commission, and the same call. It's a grace. Secondly, not only does he show this amazing grace to us in second chances, but that same grace we often underestimate as believers. He extends to nonbelievers. But we've got to get over our own apparent disqualification. Let's get over this idea that there's some wickedness or, or stubbornness or, or brokenness or sin that's too great for the gospel, that's too great for God's grace. Paul tells us in Romans 6 that when you become a believer, when, when you accept Christ, that, that you become and you're moved from a dominion of sin and wickedness and you're moved into a dominion of righteousness, a dominion that is powerful and preserving as ruled over by the king of God of grace and mercy. And that's true for you here this morning if you're a believer, and it's true for you if you're not a believer and you turn to Christ. No matter where you're at, no matter what sin has dominion over you, you are freed and moved. You're transferred from a kingdom of death to a kingdom of life. In the second half of, of verse 3 until the end of the chapter, we get what happens as Jonah begins to proclaim the good news. He he arises and he goes to Nineveh. And according to the word of the Lord, now Nineveh is an exceedingly large city, great city, three days journey in breadth. Someone much smarter than me said they did the math. It's about the size of Chesterfield County. Three days to walk across from from end to end. So he's, he's a days into it. He's a third of the way through. And he begins to call out. Forty days and Nineveh will be overthrown. This warning, this warning that, that your, your sin leads to, to damnation, to hell, to, to life without God. It's a short message that Jonah preaches. It is short and to the point. There's no fluff. There's no rabbit trails. There's nothing extra. He goes, you've got 40 days and then you'll be destroyed. But there's an implication. Now there's there's this, this hint that, that maybe in repentance you won't be. It is a turn and burn kind of message. Those aren't usually well received, right? You, you don't usually like to go somewhere and hear that your sins are what are sending you to hell. We don't, we don't want to be reminded of that. That's what the Bible tells us. That save for the mercy of God found in Christ, we deserve it. His wrath, the fullness of it. So Jonah comes proclaiming that, and he's proclaiming it to this this, um, people who are violent and hostile uh, and and who already don't like Israelites. These are some words from uh, some kings around the time of Jonah of Assyria. I flayed as many nobles as had rebelled against me and draped their skins over the pile of corpse. Some I spread out within the pile. Some I erected on stakes upon the pile. I flayed many right through my land and draped their skins over the walls. I felled 50 of their fighting men with the sword, burnt 200 captives, defeated in battle on the plain, 332 troops. With their blood, I dyed the mountain red like red wool, and the rest of them, the ravines and torrents of the mountain, swallowed. I carried off captives and possessions from them. I cut off their heads and built a tower before their city. I burnt their children. In strife and conflict, I besieged and conquered the city. I felled 3,000 of their fighting men with the sword. I captured many alive, and I cut off their arms and hands. Some I cut off their noses and ears and extremities. I gouged out the eyes of many. I made one pile of the living and one of heads, and I hung their heads on trees around the city. Now we understand a little bit, right? Why? Why? the first time this call comes, Jonah says, no. These are the words of, of, of the kings of Assyria around his time. These are not nice people, right? They're, 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 not, uh, they're not your neighbor, who, who maybe doesn't speak to you, and, but at least leaves you alone. I mean, flaying someone of their skin, that takes a, a, a level of, of depravity and evil that I, I can't understand. So we see that he might not have wanted to go to Nineveh because of their reputation. So what kind of hope would Jonah have that he would go and proclaim to these people, warn these people? What kind of hope would he have for their response? His hope is probably that they just throw him out of the city and tell him to get lost. But in reality, he's probably thinking, I'm going to do this and this is how I'm going to die. This is how I'm going to die. Because he underestimates the grace of God. And we do this. We we, we have certain people that we put into a classification that that the gospel can't possibly work for them. God's grace is not enough for them. The cross isn't enough for them. They've got to get themselves straight first. And then, then maybe, maybe they'll, they'll be over here where God's grace is enough. And the, the funny thing about that is that we always are over here, right? That God's grace is enough for us and our sins, but it's not enough for them and theirs. Jonah underestimates the grace of God. That's why he's so fearful to go to this place. But what happens? Verses 5 to 8, is, as he proclaims this, it says, What? The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast and put on sackcloth, from the greatest of them to the least of them. And the word reached the king of Nineveh, and he rose from his throne and removed his robe, covered himself with sackcloth and sat in ashes, and he issued a proclamation. What happens? God grants them conversion. God grants them conversion. It says that they believed in God. If you're here this morning and, and you're not a Christian, you wouldn't say you're a Christian. You, you're here, you know, because you're visiting family and this is what they do on Sundays, or, or maybe you're searching. Hear here, here what conversion looks like here. The, the steps and the, and the pieces and parts of it. First, in verse 5, they believed who? It's Jonah proclaiming this message to them. Jonah's the one telling them what's, what's going to happen. What the word of the lord is but who do they believe they don't believe jonah they believe god they believe god and and what we know about believing god is in the new testament believing god means we believe in his son that there's no other salvation apart from putting our trust in him and to trust in christ means that we trust in his life and his death and his resurrection that it is enough that it is the only way that not only has he taken on the judgment and the wrath of god for our sins but he has clothed us in his righteousness he's given to us his goodness our terrible work for his good work before we turned our papers in he gave us his and he took ours for them to believe in god means they believe that god is the sovereign judge and and that unlike their idols that he might show them a mercy that he might relent in his judgment that he might somehow make a way. They believed. And often this is as far as we go, right? If, if we believe in the right things, then we're, we're good to go. We can just chalk it up to the right, right. Let's mark it off, I believe the right things. I'm a good Presbyterian, I, I believe in all the Westminster, you know, confessions of faith statements and catechisms and everything else like that, and it, I believe the right things. And, and some of you, you believe the right things, but I question if you believe them or not because you're jerks you're mean you're rude when when, when someone walks in that doesn't fit what you think they should fit you're you're quick to point out their flaws to them or to to someone next to you because it's not just believing the right thing there's other parts to it true belief true faith also includes repentance it also includes repentance or if you take out a coin, there's, there's two sides to a coin, right? There's the heads and the tails. And if you don't have one of those, it's not legal tender. You can't use it. Well, the two sides of, of, of Christian conversion are that, faith and repentance. You, you don't have true faith without true repentance. You don't have true repentance without true faith. Both must be there. Now, I'm not saying you're going to repent of everything you've ever done or, or even understand that the things you've done are sinful that first day you come to Christ. Now, that's a process of life. We should be growing in repentance each and every day as we understand our depravity and our sin and our hearts more and more. And in that, the cross of Christ grows greater and greater. That's what happens in Nineveh, right? The second half of uh, verse 5, they begin. First, it's the people, and then it's the king. They put on sackcloth, a, a, a sign of repentance in the Old Testament. He, he sits in ashes, Mourning over his sin, mourning over their evilness, their, their wickedness. And he, and he orders this decree let everyone be covered in sackcloth, everyone and every beast. He, he takes it even further than just the people and says, we've got to do it forever. Anything that moves that we have, put sackcloth on it. As a nation, as a people, as a city, we are going to be living in a state of repentance and mourning over our evilness, over our sin genuine sorrow and mourning we, we, we often get caught with our hand in the cookie jar and we're sorry for our sin but then when the lights get turned back out we put our hand right back in you know for me if, if it's later in the evening and um I, I want another cookie I wait for Meredith to leave the room and then if she comes back in I like just hold the cookie jar where she can't see it and yeah I was just seeing if we still had cookies or not you know Am I sorry I got caught? Absolutely. Am I sorry I'm having one too many cookies? Absolutely not. And we treat our sin like that. And we treat repentance like that. And so we, we repent of the things that are easy to repent of, the things we've been caught in, but we don't repent of the things that are really there. The sins of our hearts. We're sorrowful. being caught. But their repentance is more than that. Their their, their repentance is, is, is truly being sorry and sorrowful over their evil and over their sin before a holy and righteous God. And look what happens. It's what happens when we're truly repentant. It drives them to God. Their repentance drives them to God. They pray. They call out to God. See, when we're not really repenting and, and, and we begin to feel the shame and the guilt of our sin, we're not driven to God. We're driven away from Him. We flee from Him. But when we're really repentant and we're really sorrowful, it brings us to God. It brings us to the cross. It brings us to the place of, of forgiveness and of freedom. And they turn from their wicked behavior. They turn from their wicked behavior. It's not a one-time thing. It's not a once-a-day thing. It's an every-moment thing. We live in a repentant state. Praying and repenting. Believing praying, and repenting. It's like a three-step waltz. And, and if, we, if we don't, when someone comes to us and, and, and points out our sin, we, we begin to get self-defensive. And, 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 and we, we struggle. But when we are living in that repentant state, we can hear their rebuke in humility. And we can repent and rest in the work of Christ. you notice in verse 9 the king says as they call out to God that, that, that they're calling out to God that he may he may he holds out hope that he will turn his anger and they will not perish right he, he holds out this hope that his God of Jonah that he now believes in is different from the idols and that this God might relent this God might show them mercy look you can't be truthful about your sin You can't can't be real in your repentance. You can't really let go of it until you know the mercy of God found in Christ. Unless you have a hope that that you're going to be forgiven, you'll never be honest about your sin. Unless you hold out hope that that somehow it's going to be covered or paid for and forgiven, you will never be honest about your sin. And so he holds out this hope. He holds out this hope that that in their honesty and in their repentance that God will relent and they will not perish. If you're here this this morning and you don't know Jesus, you'll constantly find yourself in a self-defensive mindset over and over and over again because you can't possibly face the depths of your own depravity. You can't deal with it because if you don't know that it's going to be forgiven, it just leads to a self-destructive spiral. And so you cover it and you move on. You act like it's not there and push past it. If you have received, if you know the mercy of God, then you know ahead of time that it is forgiven. Right, John tells us that, right? John, John tells us that if we confess, he is faithful and just to forgive and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's the beauty of the gospel. We we can come and confess to God. We can come and repent, knowing and resting in a forgiveness that's already been granted, that's already been forgiven and given to us. In the work of Christ, true repentance is incredibly liberating because we come and confess, we come and repent, resting in the knowledge that Christ has covered it. That Christ has, has cleansed us from all unrighteousness. And that united to him, we now walk and live in the kingdom of righteousness. Free of the dominion and power of sin. True belief. True repentance. is conversion. For the most wicked people on earth. The most wicked people on earth. So if you're here this morning and you think, that can't be true for me. You, you heard me read what they did to people. God forgives. God relents. If God can forgive me, if if Christ's grace is enough for my heart, my sins, it's enough for yours. And you know the depth of your sins. You you, you know the depth of evil in your heart. We don't like to admit it. But His grace is enough. And it's in that grace that, that... we're then propelled outward. We're propelled outward. I mean, Jonah was asked to go to the most hostile place on earth. It's like asking you to go evangelize on the campus of of Harvard or or Reed College or go to Afghanistan or or Iran or somewhere like that and, and, and proclaim the gospel. You'll be, you know, ridiculed, or in some places you'll be killed. The power of the gospel empowers us to that. And when we don't underestimate his grace, it empowers us because there's hope that he will relent, and he will bring healing and forgiveness. And he does that. God mercifully saves those. He does it throughout the history of the Old Testament. There's a prophetic voice that calls out, and the people repent, and he relents. It's it's this pattern that shows his mercy and his grace. And it's happening around the world today, right? By the time of the Islamic uh, Revolution in Iran, there was maybe estimated to be about maybe a 1,000 Christians in all of Tehran. Today, there's estimates that there's over a million that have converted to Christianity. For folks that are, that are going there in, in, in secret and, and in hiding and proclaiming the good news of the gospel, God is at work in the very places you might not think he can be at work. We often disregard the power of the gospel. We often think that, that God's grace is not enough for those people and those places. But if he's reached your heart, he can reach theirs too. How, how do we remind ourselves of this? How do we live in this? How do we rest in this? Well, one of the things we do is we show up here on Sundays. right? If, if you didn't notice, even in the shape of, of the service is, is the story of the gospel, of confession and assurance, the, 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 the proclamation of his word and his promises. It's, it's in how we order the service. It's in the songs we sing. So We, we, we sing praise to him. We're reminding each other through those words. Of, of how he has again and again shown up you know i'm a, I'm a huge sports fan i love to watch sports and, and play sports and um there there are songs that the teams sing in, in those moments of desperation um you know I, I went to college at virginia tech and they have a song that for a long time was just an entrance song but now it's turned into like in those moments of, of like pivotal you know key plays they'll 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 start blaring the music and the, the student section or even, you know, alumni like me will begin to sing. And and, and we'll, we'll sing, you know, say your prayers, little guy, don't forget. My son, to include everyone. And then you get to the, the chorus, and you're like, exit light, enter night. Everybody's jumping. And, and it, it somehow energizes the team to do better. I'm a huge Liverpool soccer fan. And there's a song that they sing. If you've never, go to YouTube and and just type it in, you never walk alone. And there are moments that they sing it after every game and before the games, sure. But during games, in these these pivotal moments where the team needs to be lifted, they sing this song. It's not like some, like, really, I mean, it's not super energetic. If you've ever heard it, it's not like, man, that's a rock anthem I want to sing. It's not. Gary and the Pacemakers wrote a song, it's not at all like that. But you sing it, and the whole stadium joins in, And all of a sudden, the team does things they don't think, that that shouldn't be possible. That's what Sunday mornings are for us. As, As we sing these praise songs, as we sing these hymns, they are songs that lift our spirits because they remind us of the truth of the gospel, and it compels us to go out. It reminds us that God's grace is far bigger than we could ever imagine. And this thing that we underestimate in every day of life, in every moment of life, is far greater than we could ever imagine. And it's what propels us forward it's what sends us out and so grace has overcome the evil in your heart and the evil in their heart over there too let's pray heavenly father we thank you for your word we thank you for second chances and for those little words that the word came a second time to jonah Lord, would you remind us throughout this week the power of the gospel, of of how great your grace and mercy are. That we might believe it and rest in it and live in it. And we might take that with us as we share it with those in Nineveh but with those right next door. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.